Welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. It is the week after, Rick, and let me tell you, things have gotten a little strange at the White House. (laughs) Uh, We had a fascinating Washington Post story this morning uh, talking about five days of fury. which would encompass the president's trip to Paris, his day back. He's actually been kind of quiet. We we haven't seen much of the president. We've heard a fair amount from him on Twitter. Um, and Rick, we had a very unusual press statement that came out from the first lady's office. So yeah, give us some context here, John, because um, as you've pointed out, first ladies sometimes war with White House staffers. But the idea that the first lady would go public with a concern about a specific White House staffer, a deputy National Security Advisor, John Bolton's number two. Something weird is going on here, John, and I feel like it it's only partially related to the election and the fury and everything else as the president thinks about a, a, a pretty serious series of house cleaning steps that uh, that he might be taking with his staff. So, so first of all, you're right. The, the, this is not new in the sense of a first lady being influential and, and, and actually moving against uh, people in the West Wing. I mean, Nancy Reagan famously uh, got uh, Don Regan's scalp, uh, and he was the chief of staff. Our, our, our friend and colleague Terry Moran pointed out uh, that we could go back to Mary Todd Lincoln, although she, she actually moved the, the president out of the White House up to the uh, the old soldier's home. Uh, you know, Edith... Um, uh, Edith Wilson, your 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 uh, you know the the first lady for your friend from Princeton. Um, look, we, we we've had we've had influential first ladies that have been very much flexed their muscles uh, in in the West Wing, but I don't know of, and I've been searching for a precedent. I have never seen a case where a first lady has put out a public statement asking for somebody to be fired, uh, and this is you know not a minor person. This isn't the chief of staff, but this is. Uh, Mira Ricardel, she is the Deputy National Security Advisor. And what's fascinating is, you know, what happened afterwards. And maybe by the time people are listening to this podcast, there will be another change. But in the immediate aftermath, there was a report from um, from one of our colleagues at the Wall Street Journal that Ricardel had been escorted off White House grounds. Then there was another report that came in from, from um, uh, you know, that, that no, actually, uh, she's still at her desk in the- in the in the White House, um, and as of now, um, and uh, we are just to be clear, we are at uh, ten eighteen uh, a.m. Uh, on on Wednesday. As of this moment, I am told she is still employed by the White House, despite the fact that the First Lady has publicly called for her to be fired. So already in this post-election period, uh, a week ago. President Trump fired Jeff Sessions, his attorney general, out. Uh, we're, we're expecting more movement than that. Maybe the Homeland Security Secretary, maybe even the White House Chief of Staff, maybe the Interior Secretary, lots of rumors. Is there a, is there a method to this particular period in staffing madness? And, John, how does it relate to, if at all, the election results? Is the president in more of a mood to shift the, the chairs around because of the results? Is he, is he angry about it? Or is this to be expected and just a little bit louder than a normal White House would be going uh, under a similar process? First of all, before we all go running around saying unprecedented, never anything like this, let, let, let's remember that after a midterm, particularly one where the party in power lost uh, some ground, changes are not unusual. I mean, we, we remember right after the 2006 midterms, uh, Don Rumsfeld getting fired. Um, but this does seem different, and I don't think this is about the president being angry with the results. I think the president still believes 
that it was a good night for him. I actually think he genuinely believes that, by the way. Really? Um, I, yeah, because um, he, he, they, they were not pretending that they thought that they had a chance to win uh, the House. Um, he may have said – I mean, even in his public statements, the president is pretty transparent about this stuff. He was always – you know, things look really, really good in the Senate. You know, the House, uh, I think they look good, but we'll see. Um, was was kind of his public posture. So I think he's a bit emboldened uh, by the results. I think that's why you saw the, 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 the abrupt firing of Sessions. He felt like, well, hey, I've got a little buffer in the Senate. I can get my own guy in there as attorney general, own woman, attorney general, whatever. And um, so I, I, I don't think it's – but I, I think there, there is a churn. There is an uneasiness uh, that, that I am sensing in the West Wing. Um, the the, 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 the the president seem, feels restless to me, um, and um, it's and yet not really. There, there are a lot of triggers that you feel are about to be pulled, but aren't pulled. I mean, this this Kirsten Nielsen story. I mean, I've had many senior officials say, you know, it's just a matter of time. She's on the way out, and if she goes, it's almost certain that. Uh, um, that John Kelly will go as chief of staff. And by the way, you know, um, um, Nick Ayers, vice, the vice president's chief of staff, is is, is poised to, to take that job. But that's not – I mean there's so much churn without a lot of actual action. And then you had this kind of strange chapter with uh, with, with Rick Cardell, which is I, – I, I imagine has absolutely nothing at all to do with the midterms. It's kind of out of nowhere. So the pre- is the president's view at this moment that – there's no reason to change anything he's done and that, that the, it's sort of full steam ahead because I wonder how much this White House even now a week later has processed how the world has changed. The fact that the Democrats will have power come January, the fact that the, the there are so many fewer moderate suburban Republicans representing districts as a direct result of President Trump's leadership. Uh, the fact that their margin in the Senate will be larger, but maybe not as much larger as they might have hoped given how friendly this map was for them in the Senate. They look, as of today's facts, to be plus two, perhaps, maybe as few as plus one, depending on the results in, in, in Florida. Uh, they lost the race in Nevada. They lost the race in Arizona. Uh, and uh, I wonder if there's any elements in the White House that are saying, Mr. President, we have a problem here. Maybe there's a, something we should be doing just a little bit differently. I talked to one very senior official who, frankly, I think is on the way out on his own accord, um, who on election night uh, said to me, with this economy, if we lose the House, people need to be fired. I got to tell you, that's a minority view. <laughs> I, 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 I don't get the sense that there is – Well, people are going to get fired anyway, but not because yeah, of that. Yeah, people are, people get fired, but not, but not because they lost the House. Um, and uh, – I, I, I don't get the sense that there is a, uh, a, a course correction going on. I thought that the president's um, extraordinary press conference last week um, was interesting because he was saying kind of two things at once, which is not unusual. Um, but he had that riff about how Nancy Pelosi loves her country and maybe there are you know, things we can really work on. And, we'll, we'll, and, and maybe losing the House was a good thing because now – We'll have to do things bipartisan-wise, and we can get 60 votes. He seemed to be suggesting, because all the Democrats will be with us on whatever comes out of the House, because it's going to be Democratic-driven, and then we just need you know, a certain number of Republicans. Um, <laughs> I don't know if, you know, uh, if, if Mitch McConnell's on, on, <laughs> on, on board with all, all, all of that, uh, but at the same time, he was, prepared, he was making clear he's ready for war. 
uh, right. if they go forward with investigations, which obviously they are. And obviously they are. And and the, uh, obviously the, the Democrats had a good election night. The week since then has arguably been better for them. You've seen the— yeah, Why is that, Rick? Can you explain to me—I uh, I mean— and, and the president's been, you know, talk, accusing people of fraud, vote fraud, and trying to steal elections without any evidence. Uh, and we've seen some pretty prominent Republicans doing that as well. But, but just as a, as, a, as a layperson watching and you see what happens on, on, on election night and, you know, you see, um, you know, when, by the time you go to bed, the Republicans winning in Arizona, um, minimizing the losses in the House, uh, you know, concession on the governor's race in Florida. It seems like the uh, uh, the, the Senate race also uh, a, a done deal. And then suddenly, you start seeing the votes swing in the. I mean, the Democrat. I mean, the, you don't need to be a crazy conspiracy theorist to just ask what's going on. Can you explain? You're our genius on this. Stuff. Well, uh, two issues here. One is time zones, and the other is federalism. The time zones piece of it is that I think a lot of election nights dictated by the East Coast and the original, the initial returns that come in. And as we covered on election night, the Democrats were doing okay, but not great through a good portion of the evening. Uh, And even as they looked like they flipped the House, they were in bad shape in a whole bunch of Senate races. The second thing, federalism, means you've got 50 different states that do elections in different ways. And it just so happens that a couple of the states that happen to count very, very slowly are out west. So they were not done then, and they weren't done for several days. Uh, And that includes Arizona, that includes Nevada, and includes most, most relevant now, California, where there's still a bunch of House races that are outstanding. In California, you just have to postmark your ballot on Election Day. So literally ballots are received days up to a week afterward. So there are still actually uncounted ballots. Because this is more than time zones. I mean, California is three hours. <laughs> not three they're, they're days. Not, they're they're, yes. not, they're, not, they're yes. not a week and a half. That's right. right. That's right. Uh, so that's the, but, but California, as those results have come in, you've seen Republican after Republican fall. And right now, the Democrats, who just needed 23 seats, are well into the 30s. Maybe maybe we'll get close to 40 by the end of it, which, hell, heck, it looks like a wave. Okay, so Dan Rohrbacher is going down, right? Is that way it looks? We, down, we haven't been a call, but but seems significantly down hard. Uh, and then just very quickly, we got to take a break. By the way, I want to I want to make it clear: we are about to talk to a Democrat who is the most recent Democrat to declare that he is running for president of the United States. Uh, uh, on the line with us, we, we we will get to that in just a moment. Just a tease. Not going to tell you who it is yet, Rick. But but when we come back from the break. But before we go. Florida, all this noise about, yeah. um, you know, we obviously have a recount underway, two recounts underway. Uh, we have allegations of fraud back and forth. Um, uh, it, it, it's, I mean, I'm getting, I mean, getting PTSD from, from, from 2000, a campaign which I covered very closely. Um, but, but bottom line, how likely is it that that Senate race flips that, uh, that that Nelson actually emerges from a recount as the victor. I would put it that very very likely, which is in part what Wait, makes me very that, likely that it that, flips. Yes, that, that Rick that, Scott is the winner. He's no no no. I'm, so I'm, I'm asking you that it flips right now. It's it's Scott. Oh, I see. Party flip. No no. Bill Nelson is likely to lose. He's going to he, unless there's some huge error in tabulations, like someone got the ten thousands digit wrong in counting. You're not going to find that many votes. Uh, you'll find votes maybe in the hundreds, but twelve thousand. 15,000 votes, you just don't overcome a margin like that, uh, which makes me wonder why Republicans are making this so much about voter fraud and President Trump among them, because they're probably going to win the race anyway. Uh, and they're, what they're doing now is seriously undermining faith in elections, period. Yeah, that's troubling. Okay, uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, 
We will be speaking to the latest Democrat to declare a campaign for president in 2020. Do you spend the night tossing and turning? Are you dealing with a stiff neck and back for months? If you're struggling to get a good night's sleep, you've got to try a Purple Mattress. The Purple Mattress will probably feel different than anything you've ever experienced because it uses a new material developed by an actual rocket scientist. The Purple Mattress feels very unique because it's both firm and soft, so it keeps everything supported while still feeling really comfortable. Plus, it's breathable, so it sleeps cool. Try your Purple Mattress with a 100-night risk-free trial, and if you're not fully satisfied, you can return it for a full refund. Your Purple Mattress is backed by a 10-year warranty, free shipping, and returns. You're going to love Purple. And right now, our listeners will get a free Purple pillow with the purchase of a mattress. Just text POWERHOUSE to 474747. The only way to get this free pillow is to text POWERHOUSE to 474747. Message and data rates may apply. Joining us now is Richard Ojeda from West Virginia, latest to declare a campaign for president. Uh, as you know, Rick, uh, Mr. Ojeda is in the state legislature in West Virginia, ran uh, for, for the House, lost, but but vastly outperformed uh, what Democrats have done uh, in that House seat. He's been called JFK with tattoos and a bench press. Very interesting uh, uh, figure, uh, 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 veteran, uh, uh, somebody we've been in- interested in talking to for a while. Thank you for joining us, sir. Well, thank you for having me on. So um, I, I, I want to just ask you a very blunt question. We saw you announce uh, uh, that you're running for president. Um but you just ran for the House of Representatives and you lost. So how, how do you go from a loss for the House to a successful run for the White House? Well, you know, the thing is, is that over the course of the 19 months where, you know, I ran for the House of Representatives, I received countless telephone calls, emails, uh, letters from people all across the United States of America in support. Uh, of course, obviously, they couldn't vote for me because it wasn't in my district. But, you know, the letters and things like that that we received educated me that the problems that we have in southern West Virginia are the same problems that we have all across the United States of America in south side of Chicago, Flint, Michigan, the Bronx, New York, uh, the Rio Grande Valley, and, and even, and like I said, the other people, you know, it's the same thing. Silicon Valley, you know, has people that struggle. These are problems all across the United States of America. So, you know, rather than just sit silent, you know, it is what it is. Uh, you know, and, and I believe wholeheartedly that, you know, the, the things that we did in my race, you know, we swung over 30 percent Trump voters in West Virginia third. You know, if Democrats are going to win in 2020, they need to be able to do that. And I believe I've proven that I can. You, you have something in your background that I, I, I can safely say I don't think any of the other Democrats thinking about running for president have. I, I don't think a single one. If I'm correct here, you voted for Donald Trump for president in 2016. Is that correct? Yes, that's true. Well, and, and I will tell you that, you know, uh, he failed me. He failed me miserably. He, he, but can, you, can you bring us back to that moment? Why, why did you vote for Trump? What did you see in him? Well, you know, at the time, uh, I saw someone who was talking about, you know, helping the people, the working class. Uh, you know, and, and that's the type of people that I relate to. 
You know, when I look around where I was from, I saw people that were struggling greatly. And I know that, you know, I go back to the coal industry. I, I come from the coal fields. And he was the one that was talking about helping these people to be able to put food on the table, feed their families. So even though I knew the things that he was saying, a lot of the things that he was saying I was not happy with, uh, you know, but at the end of the day, it's allowing the people that I live around, that I love, to be able to survive. You know, in 2020, you know, first off, you know, you got to remember, uh, a, a, a large portion of, of even Democrats supported Donald Trump. You know, and, and, and the truth is, is that, you know, we can, we can uh, you know, I, I can look in the eyes of Trump voters and I relate to them. So President Trump has returned the favor by going to West Virginia and calling you, quote, a total wacko and stone cold crazy. I, I ask this in, in all seriousness because I think it's a, a question that all the 2020 contenders are going to have to wrestle with. We know President Trump calls people names. He's already got a couple names. We'll see if one of them becomes a nickname if you get if you get into that exalted territory. But what do you call President Trump back when he says things like this? Well, you know, I call him President Bonespurs. I mean, th- think about what just recently happened. You know, it, you know, here's a guy that comes down to West Virginia, stands in front of coal miners. He's a guy that has no problem using veterans as props. But, uh, you know, here on, on Veterans Day, didn't have the guts to visit Arlington National Cemetery, where people pay the ultimate sacrifice, you know, because he was worried that the overcast could turn into rain and, and mess up his hair. You know, that's unacceptable. But that's the type of person that we're dealing with here. You know, we're talking about somebody who obviously thinks that he's better than everybody. So how do you explain the appeal that he seems to have among people who have served, given the fact that he didn't? given the fact that Mike Pence didn't. Uh, and he, he talks about this bond he has with the military. Um, polling would suggest he's got a point there. But how do you explain that? And, and what would it mean, would a pre- what would a President Ojeda be doing differently regarding the military, given, given your service, given your background? Well, I think that uh, people that are serving in the military would automatically know where I come from, my background. You know, uh, where I come from, you know, you don't eat until your troops are fed. I think, my, I think the people out there serving in the military today would know that I'll do everything in my power to make sure that they have the beans and the bullets to be able to fight and win this nation's war. You know, uh, they, can, they can realize that, you know, I, I, they know that I've, I've stood where they've stood. I, you know, I will never ask someone to do something that I am not willing to do myself. That's part of Leadership 101. President Trump does not understand Leadership 101. I've lived it my whole life. So, so let, let me bring you back into the uh, what's going to happen next with the Democrats before we, you know, before we jump into 2020. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, should she be the Speaker of the House? Well, uh, I, 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 she probably will end up being the Speaker of the House, but I personally think that you know she's done damage to the Democratic Party. What kind of damage? I mean, she, she'll talk about how she's one of the best fundraisers in Democratic Party history when she was speaker last time, got a lot done uh, alongside the Obama administration in the two years the Democrats had full control. What specifically do you feel like Pelosi, whereas Pelosi has done damage? Well, do you think that the Democratic Party can relate to rural America? Because I don't. If you look at middle America, the reason why it's so red is because they cannot, the Democratic Party cannot relate to them. They definitely have not done anything to support people from where I come from in West Virginia. So do you think, if you're looking at the map, that it's realistic for Democrats to say we can win West Virginia? Or should they be targeting the more traditional battlegrounds, the, the Ohio's and the Florida's, but also the Sun Belt, Arizona, maybe even Texas, given the, the Senate results there? No, I think that if we go back to what being a Democrat truly is, 
if we if we start if you know finding the people out there that can relate to the people on the ground, people that say, you know what, I'm going to take care of the working class citizens, and that's where I stand. I take care of the working class citizens. I support unions wholeheartedly. People that take care of our elderly, protecting Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. People that uh, want to take care of our sick out there, you know, by offering things like a non-addictive form of pain management. And people that want to take care of our veterans. And when I say that, I mean for real. If I'm going to send you away and break you, I'm going to fix you when you come home. I'm going to stop, you know, allowing our soldiers to continue being in countries where, I mean, literally, we've been going nonstop for 17 straight years. When there's no reason for us to even be there, but the only reason why we're there is because there's contractors out there that still want to continue padding their pockets. That has to stop as soon as possible. All right, so so you, um, I've got a, you're, you're jumping into a very very crowded field. Um, not yet. It's going to be, but not yeah, yet. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's gonna. I mean, we can safely say, it, Rick. I mean, yeah. you know this stuff better than I do. We're gonna have what, fifteen, twenty candidates, maybe, maybe yeah. twenty candidates. So. Uh, but, but before you go, give us a sense of you know you're obviously a dark horse in all this. Uh, you, you know you, you don't you don't have a have a national uh, name recognition yet. You don't have the platform that some of these others have. Uh, what's what's the game plan? How do you how do you how do you actually put together a, a convincing serious national campaign? Well, you know we're going to work hard to start establishing rallies with people, and I think that there's a lot of things. You know, one of the things that I'm bringing to the table right off the bat is my first pillar in, in my plan, and that's the anti-corruption. Now, I'm telling you right now, these people that are, that are th- going to throw their hat in the ring, they cannot relate to the average citizen out there. And the truth is, is they don't want to relate to the average citizen out there. I'm saying right now that if you're going to serve this nation uh, in, a, in a federal position, you need to start by proving that you're willing to sacrifice first. You know, I'm saying that, you know, people are sick and tired of the millionaires running the system. I'm saying that, you know, if we're talking about health care, you have to be willing right off the bat to say that you are going to be part of the very same health care. No more Cadillac deals that they get. They have to be a part of the same medical care system that everybody else is a part of. If you're military, then it's VA, just like I am right now. Because I will tell you, we will see people starting to fix the problems with health care in America when the, when the votes that they cast and the decisions that they make directly affect them and their families. I'm saying that they need to sacrifice also in terms of their financial capabilities. No more being able to go get some sweet deal after you, you know, spend a stint as a congressman and becoming a lobbyist. I'm saying that you need to agree to a net worth of $1 million, and when you're done in politics, regardless if it was one term or ten terms, you get a retirement of $130,000 with a cap of $250,000. How many people are willing to do that to be able to support this nation? Because I am. Because where I come from, $250,000 a cap a year and a million-dollar net worth is far better than the people that I, that I know and the far better than the people in middle America can, can understand. So it's time for people to start sacrificing. And I think most people can relate to that. And I, I want to ask you, because you were, you, before you were a Trump supporter, you were a Bernie Sanders supporter, and you've said that Bernie Sanders was screwed yes. over by Hillary Clinton. I'm curious about what kind of process you are expecting from the Democratic Party this time around, and when you think the first Democratic debate should be? Well, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking probably around May time frame, uh, and I'm hoping that I can be up there on the big stage. How do you think you can, er, you need to earn your way on to the stage? What's the, what, what criteria do you think the party should use to, to even make that decision when you're expecting as many candidates as we may have? Well, I think it comes down to who do they believe can relate to the people? Who can win in 2020? 
Because I'll tell you right now, we can go through the same thing we went through in 2016 where everybody's crying on election night because we send the same people, the same type of people, the cookie-cutter politician, once again, right at the same person, Donald Trump, and watch him absolutely you know, do, do away with them. You know, it's about putting somebody that can stand toe-to-toe with him and, and somebody like myself that understands sacrifice. He doesn't understand sacrifice. He may talk it, but he don't live it. I do. All right, Mr. Richard Ojeda, thank you for joining us on Powerhouse Politics. Uh, we, 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 we can hear your passion, and we look forward to seeing you out there on the campaign trail. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate this opportunity. Thank you, sir. So, uh, Rick, a long shot? Yes, a long shot, uh, but uh, but a, but a compelling story and a biography. And if he works his way onto a debate stage, I think it, he'll be interesting. He'll be an interesting <laughs> I think... guy. I mean, just, you know, starting with his first platform, um, the the idea little, of uh, yeah, yeah, the idea of, of sacrificing any net worth beyond a million dollars. How do you actually do that? Do do? I don't yeah. think Bernie Sanders would go there. Right. I mean, he rails against the millionaires and the billionaires, but this is another level. Of so that. we have a Trump supporter. I mean, a Trump past Trump voter who actually is. To the left more, of Bernie Sanders yeah, on, on this Bernie economic Sanders. issue, at least, yeah, yes. Yeah. But and, and I think the critique that he is channeling of the but Democratic he'll stand party, out on it if he, if he actually yes. gets on a debate stage. And that's a big if. But you know, I I I think of you know some of the people like you know uh, Herman Cain who came from nowhere and yeah. got out. I mean, he, he has some of that kind of you you can you can you can feel it for, you can hear it in his voice. Certainly, the passion and the he's backstory. got he's got I'm told 36 tattoos. Yes, third I, and we'll and the campaign's still young. I mean, you got a lot of time <laughs> here to, to work on that. And hey, look, the, the Democratic Party is going to have a challenge in in restraining this. They have said at the outset that they want this to be a very fair and freewheeling campaign. So they're going to keep him off the debate stage. It, it's hard for me to imagine how they how they keep. Richard Ojeda off the debate stage. Uh, you know, he, he's not the first declared candidate. John Delaney, the congressman from Maryland, is already in the race as well. I don't know where they draw the dividing line, but it, it's going to be a difficult call for them to say that this former paratrooper who started to develop a national following, by the way, during this campaign, a lot of national interest in, in this campaign, doesn't belong out there when he is maybe the only one who'd be talking in this kind of passionate uh, first-person language about the need to, re- to relate to, to rural America. So I, I want to switch gears before we, we, we close off uh, the show. I, I don't know if you've heard about this, but there's some big news, um, big ABC news. And that is that our friend, I mean, true friend of the podcast, Paula Ferris, has got a new podcast herself uh, called Journeys of Faith with Paula Ferris. And it debuts, you know when? I think, I think it's today, John. Today. Is that possible? Today. Did we get that right? And, uh, you know, I am, um, and I mean, we both are huge fans of Paula Ferris, uh, her, her reporting, um, uh, her sense of what's going on in the country. Um, and she's, she's one of the true, true talents at this network. I'm very excited for this podcast. She's got uh, um, a, a series of, of guests uh, right off the bat, including uh, Ben Shapiro, um, Hillary Scott of, of of Lady Antebellum and Luke Bryan. I mean, that's going to be fantastic. And even Robin Roberts. And uh, we're told that uh, maybe Ms. Kellyanne Conway at some point in the future. Kind of interested in that one as well. Yeah, that'll be very interesting. So, uh, Paula, are you with us? I'm with you. And oh, I, she's I, there. Were you listening to that? I listened to the whole thing, you guys. Oh. Anytime I need a little pick-me-up, I'm just <laughs> going to come on the podcast because I just appreciate how how you guys are great friends. Um, but you've been champions and advocates, and and I just appreciate that. And this business in particular, you guys know, can be cutthroat, so it's nice to have somebody 
uh, you know, have your back and champion champion you and champion what you're about. Absolutely. Well, it's not not even a close call. Uh, from this our is a group hug right here. So here a it is. Big here it is. group hug. So so tell us what what a tell us the kind of in a nutshell what is this podcast? Uh, sure. What's it all about? Well, you know, it the impetus for the podcast is it is twofold. It's born out of my passion. I'm a, a person of very deep faith, and I know how my faith has guided me through the best and worst of times. And also, um, as a journalist, you know, we talk to people about the salacious headline or their new project or about that game-winning catch um, or the game-winning home run. A little analogy for you, John Carl. Yes. But but we don't talk to them about faith. You know, if they bring up God or Allah or Jesus, we're like, okay, we're not going to use that. So this is a, a platform for people, influencers, to talk about what they believe why they believe it, and how it's guided them through the best and worst of times. An opportunity to see people in a different light. And I think in this these divisive times that we're in, we can all take a moment to just listen and learn from one another and respect that my faith may not look like yours, but um, let's just respect that we have these grounding principles. And let's see what makes you tick. And I'm intrigued, Paula, in, in how this applies to a political perspective. Because I, I've always been struck since in my years of covering politics that uh, politicians are very good at, at, at talking about it in very general terms. Um, President Trump, I would include yes. in that. Uh, but, but when it gets down to actually talking about their personal relationships with God, mm-hmm. with, their, with how religion actually shapes them. I feel like most politicians fall back on platitudes very quickly, maybe out of an abundance of caution or maybe just going out on a limb and saying maybe it's not genuine in all cases when they're talking about it. Right. And, and I think, you know, can you separate your the who you are as a person from the policy? You mentioned Kellyanne Conway. She's next week. I also have Marla Maples. Um, I have Ben Shapiro, who is a conservative commentator and also an Orthodox Jew on um, this week. And I asked Kellyanne specifically, you know, what role does faith play in politics and in policy? And for her, it's the reason that she's in the White House. She feels like she's there to influence. She doesn't always see eye to eye. Many times the administration's policies, um, they contradict her own faith, but she's there to push. And, um, you know, I also talked to her about the president's Christianity. You know, a lot of people have called him out. How can he be a Christian when being a Christian means you're supposed to love God and love people and turn the other cheek? And he doesn't necessarily do that. I I, I just think, you know, I I do want to talk to a lot of politicians about their particular faith and the role that faith does play in policy and in their decisions, because some will say, well, I'm personally, you know, um, anti-abortion. But when it comes to policy, I, you know, I don't believe that the government has a role in that. So I I just think, you know, that's the thing that I want to get to, Rick, is not one journey looks like the next journey, if that makes sense. And so one person's interpretation of their faith and how it guides them might be a little different than the other person. Um, But for me, I can't separate them. That's why I'm doing this podcast. So, And and this will be a weekly podcast? Weekly podcast every Wednesday. One – It'll be one person per episode. So next next week it'll just be Kellyanne Conway. But we just wanted to give people – um, a, a little bit more to chew on this first week. So that's why we're dropping three episodes, including Luke Bryan and Hillary Scott. It's kind of a country music special because of the CMAs tonight. And then we also God, have Ben I Shapiro. I love them too. That is, that is it, that's it, They're really great. And yeah. it's just, and Robin Roberts, of course. But it's just, it's so interesting to see a different side. What makes these people tick? You know, what guides and grounds them? And, and um, 
you know, keeps them true to who they are. So it, I, I'm just excited to explore this this whole world. And I think um, there is an appetite for it. People want to talk about it. People want to hear about it. But we're just not giving that to them right now. And I, I hope people support it. And um, thank you if you've subscribed. Have you guys subscribed? I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm going to subscribe right now. Right, I, right I, I, I haven't even had a chance to do it yet. I'm going to do this right now. So you, go okay. the, you go to anywhere you um, get your podcasts. We know that's the places. Right. You, it's called you Journeys download. of Faith. And if you have, if you guys, I mean, if you want me to pursue a podcast with a particular political figure, send it my way. I, I'm looking for people that have really extraordinary stories too, like a Joe Lieberman. Um, what I love about and what I love about Ben Shapiro too, you know, his Judaism and and what that means in terms of the news cycle. Because of Shabbat, he turns his phones off Friday sunset, doesn't turn them on again until sunset on Saturday. So um, it's just an, an inter- interesting perspective into uh, so many of these influencers' lives. Fantastic. Well, this sounds great, and uh, we are very excited for it, subscribing right now. The only thing we ask, Paul, is that you agree to continue to come on our podcast even as uh, you have your your own Any, uh, podcast as well. Anytime. Awesome. Paula um, Ferris. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. I thought we were going to talk about Texas oh, and, 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 and <laughs> politics. Well, one, one last I really want to do, do some sports, by can the way. We talk, can we talk sports, please? I'm oh. going to the Michigan football game on Saturday. Wow, and it's just it's That's just a Indiana. religious experience as far as, far as I'm concerned. So, uh, it is. Quickly on Texas. Beto, what's next for uh, Beto Mania? Does he run for president? Well, you look at the odds and they say it's Joe Biden, it's Bernie Sanders, and Beto O'Rourke. If you can get that close... About 2% of the vote. He lost by about 220,000 votes in Texas, which you guys know hasn't been blue for a state seat since 94. That Senate seat has been red since 88. If you can get that close, I think you've got a shot. And I think it's only in Texas can you say you lose the Senate seat, but you can still run for president. I, I just think his platform, honestly, was a little too progressive. You know, so, he was all about gun control. He, I never heard him mention the economy once or jobs. It was health care and unity and inspiration, which appealed to a lot of people. Um, but he's going to have to broaden that message. To, he has to uh, broaden that message. Yeah. It's a very progressive message. And he came out initially with the impeachment mess with impeachment. He said that there's enough to impeach. He said he would not pursue those proceedings. But, you know, that was enough for Senator Cruz to just cast him as far left. Well, all I'm going to say is he told you he was not going to run. He said uh, no, punto, period. When I said I, this is a, this is verbatim. I said, is there a scenario where you run for president in 2020 and I said 2020, just like that. In 2020 or beyond, and he said no, punto period. Okay, so if he's going to change and if he's going to explore this, my only request is that he call you back <laughs> and update that interview because he was quite emphatic with you. And I know what punto means. I speak enough Spanish, Rick. I mean, look, period. But I agree. He is he is a guy also that, that showed that he could excite uh, the Democratic base and the fundraising numbers and everything else. Um, and it, some people, like, they couldn't really – they couldn't really quantify why they were voting other than they just liked how positive he was and how unifying he was. And that's why Ted Cruz reduced him to puppy dog, you know, puppies and rainbows. Right. So there's a lot and of. By the way, we like puppies and rainbows here at the Power House Politics. You like puppies and rainbows? Podcast. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. I mean, absolutely. All right. Paula <laughs> Ferris, we will talk to you again soon. Very uh, excited about the podcast. Hey, go blue, by the way. Big game. Right. Thank you, you guys. Thank you. I'm, I'm kind of with Northwestern, man. I, you know, that's where you're, uh, that's where you're uh, going. No, no, Northwestern, we we uh, Big Ten West, man. All right, first place. Go, yeah. Mark mark that one down. I I, I am intrigued by this because uh, I feel like faith 
it animates a lot of folks. It animates a lot of voters. We've seen faith used in some really intriguing and interesting ways in the in the Trump era, um, with the president and the vice president both, who have Absolutely. very different interpretations of their own faith. So we'll see what, where Paula goes with this. Should be fun. All right, all right. Well, that is all the time we have on Powerhouse Politics. Uh, I want to thank our entire production team. I don't know where Trevor Hastings was, but apparently he was was simply not around. So uh, I, I'm not I'm not going to thank him this time. Uh, but uh, but Angie Yak. Avery Miller, uh, Meredith McGraw offered a, a, a big assist on this. Susie Lou, thank you very much uh, for listening to Powerhouse Politics. We'll talk to you again soon. <laughs> <laughs>